What is Demystifying Research? Hosted by me, Kelly Harris. And me, Catherine Hoyt. Demystifying Research is a space where we dialogue on training, careers, and all things research. Everything from is research right for me to thinking about applications, mentorship, which research degree is right for me, handling failure and rejection, CVs versus resumes, and funding. This is a space where we engage in discussions around the questions we all have or have had when considering a career in research and science. As clinician scientists, we seek to answer questions and address issues that aren't clearly addressed in more formal spaces, things that weren't addressed in our clinical training, questions that we may not know how or where to begin to seek answers. This is not a space only for scientists and researchers, but for anyone who may be interested in science and research. We're so glad you've joined us. Let's dive in. Um, so I know we sent you some of the questions and things ahead of time, but mostly we just wanted to have a short conversation on how we can help people that are preparing to start a PhD program or maybe now are in their first semester or maybe they're in their second year and they're still working some of those kinks out on how you can be successful in getting a PhD. We know it's super hard and people go through lots of different experiences when they're trying to get uh, trying to get to that finish line of their PhD. And you're somebody who's been really successful. So maybe do you want to start off, uh, Dr. Kersey, telling us a little bit about yourself and your training path and um, what you're doing now? Sure. Sure. So I actually started as a clinical OT. I worked clinically for six years, um, mostly in inpatient rehab, and then transitioned into community-based practice, where I very quickly learned that there were a lot of barriers that people were facing to successfully returning to their daily life after a new um, acquired brain injury or new disability that we were not adequately preparing people for before discharging them from the hospital or from rehab. And when I turned to the evidence on social barriers, I found uh, not very much. And so I decided then to go back to uh, school, get a PhD, and learn how to do research so that I could try to solve that problem. And I think that having that clinical experience was really nice because it's given me a lot of insights into um, how practice works and what some of the challenges are. And that has really fueled a lot of my research questions. And kind of having an idea of what specific clinical problems I wanted to solve helped me pick the right PhD program and the right mentor for me. And I think that that was really nice to know that in advance because, you know, researchers all have their very different areas of expertise. And um, knowing you want to get the most or knowing what you want to get from your PhD program will really help you, um, I think, pick a good mentor to start with and a good program to start with. So I chose to go to the University of Pittsburgh, both for personal and professional reasons. That is where I'm from and where most of my family is. And so it was going home for me. Um, but also I was incredibly lucky to have Beth Skidmore at Pitt as my PhD mentor. Um, finished my program there in 2021 did a two-year postdoc at the University of Illinois in Chicago, and then now I am new research faculty here at Washington University in St. Louis. We're so excited to have you. I'm just yeah. curious, so saying that out loud made me really think about how important the 
that trajectory was, you know, thinking about being a clinician and the impact that that had and brought you to asking really specific research questions. Just really quick, for people that might be beginning their PhD, what exactly is a postdoc and how did you get there? Sure. A postdoc is sort of a transitional program that is for people who have recently completed a PhD program but maybe aren't quite ready for a faculty position yet because they want to either um, learn a new type of research methods or get into a new content area of expertise, uh, supplement their PhD training somehow to really launch them on an independent research track. And for me, um, I, you know, knowing that I wanted to think about uh, designing intervention, occupational therapy or rehab intervention, chose a PhD program focused on developing and testing new rehab interventions, but then also realized that I needed more training in community-based participatory research methods, which is why I chose to pursue a postdoc. Um, it, it focused on community-based participatory research and community engagement methods. And um, Joy Hamill was my mentor and she's fabulous. <laughs> I learned so much from her. It was a really great experience and I'm very glad I did that because it gave me a whole new skill set um, that I would not have otherwise had. That's excellent. Um, you, I, I have a question that you kind of started, I think, touching on in your when you were just talking about your own pathway. And I'm just wondering, um, you've actually touched on a lot of things about like, what are key things that kind of led you to make the decisions you were making, right? So things that you thought were really important. And so I'm just wondering what you feel like are some of the most important things that prospective um, PhD students and trainees should should think about in their preparation. I know you talked about identifying mentors really with both of those experiences, but what are other things um, that you feel like are kind of key decision points or that, that prospective PhD students should do? Yeah, I think for me, the methods was number one. Um, and also making sure that I had a mentor who um, I connected with at first, you know, it's always hard to tell really in advance what a mentor is going to be like. Um, I did hit the jackpot, but also, you know, I, I think just the fact that we had several conversations before I started, and already we were establishing good methods for communication. Um, it showed me a lot about what her response was response time was going to be like, and she provided a lot of encouragement before I even applied. Those are really encouraging things that made me feel like she could be a really good mentor. Um, and I think that that it is important to have a mentor who you think you can have a good relationship with. And if you're ever not really sure, I think it's okay to ask if it, if you can talk to people who are current mentees or previous mentees to learn a little bit more about their style because it's a really intense and long-term commitment. Um, and I think it's, it's okay to ask those things to make sure that it's the right match. But in addition to the program and the mentor, I think it's also important just to think about personal life needs. Um, I was in my late 20s by the time I went back for a PhD and uh, was married and needed to make sure that wherever I went, my husband would be able to find a job, that we would have a good quality of life for the stage of life that we were in. And I think it's really important to continue to balance 
the things that are important in a personal life. Um, I had not had kids yet when I started, but I have since, which is another factor that has driven um, our decision, the places that we've moved to both for a postdoc and now for a faculty position. And I think those are at least as important as the academic influences on a decision. I think that is so important what you just said. I think a lot of times we think we have to like sacrifice everything for, you know, this degree or this educational experience or whatever. And, and we're people, right? And like life, our personal life matters. And so I, I don't know, I just love that you are talking about how balancing, you know, kind of the things that fit for not just your educational experience, but your family were key decisions for you. Um, and, and I think for, for many of us, right, that's like, it's one of those things I feel like we're scared to say or ask for when we're going yeah. into these kinds of things. Like we have to be so flexible and, um, and sometimes there's non-negotiables, right. Where your family's mm-hmm. concerned. So, so that's awesome. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I get, I think I'm trying to think where I want to go next. Um, I have a, I'm like thinking about the families. Can I ask something, Kelly? Yeah, go ahead. Um, I was just thinking, like, as you were talking about that, Jess, um, when people are thinking about how to be successful in a PhD program, could you tell us a little bit about how you organized your time so that you were able to meet all of those different needs? Uh, (laughs) um, Sure, I can try. Um, Again, when I started, I didn't have kids. I had a husband with his own very busy job. And so I feel like there were, um, life was a little simpler when I started. And I think I took on too many things, which I'm happy to talk about more. When I started, I took on too many. And I did start off with incredibly long days that would not have been sustainable as things in my personal life continued to change. Um, I had a baby as I was submitting my um, dissertation proposal right around the time I defended my proposal. And shortly after that, um, COVID hit. (laughs) And between those two things, uh, losing daycare uh, for a newborn while trying to collect dissertation data, you know, priorities and strategies had to really change a lot. And I think at that point, it just forced me to be a lot more focused on the specific things that would help me get through the program and get ready for my next step, Um, which was the silver lining of of those couple of challenges or those couple of changes. I think I've lost track of what your actual question was. I I think... (laughs) I'm jumping in before Catherine can repeat the question, but no, I, I, I've heard you say that before that um, I've heard you say something like COVID helped you to be so much more efficient and like thinking about how, what was such a huge challenge for everybody, like how you frame that in this kind of, you know, positive growth way has made me rethink like, what am I learning from, from how I, you know, <laughs> like from, from these challenges. Right. I don't know. So I, um, like kind of making the most of circumstances, right? And like, how do you learn to be the most efficient? So um, I just was thinking about that when you said that. 
Yeah, well, so when I started my PhD program, I had come in as somebody who always had at least one full-time job and at sometimes per diem jobs or immediately before my PhD program, also my own private practice on the side, um, was actively involved in my state associations, um, other volunteer opportunities. I, I had my own OT podcast for a while. I had so many things going on. And one of the first things that my mentor said to me when I started was, you're going to have to let go of, of all of this. And you're going to have to focus on learning an entirely new skill set. And it's going to be hard. And you're going to have to let go of these other things. And I kind of at first was like, oh, yeah, sure, whatever, of course. Like, I'm going to be fine. I've been managing like this my whole life. I'm going to be fine. And of course I wasn't. It was too many things. And I was just trying my best to continue to to do all the things that I wanted to do. It was really when COVID hit that I, I learned that it was not sustainable. And um, that's when I started really getting a lot more focused. And I think uh, one of the things that has helped me figure out how to prioritize and focus from that is my PhD mentor always said, you need to have your t-shirt statement, which is like, what is your t-shirt going to say that you do to change the world? I'm not sure why it was a t-shirt, but I had that and I ended up making it into kind of like my research mission statement. So I know what my research mission statement is. And this thing that I'm being asked to take on or that I'm thinking about taking on, is it going to help me achieve my, my t-shirt statement or my mission statement for what I want to do with my career? And if it's not, then it's probably not something that I should be doing right now. Um, and that has been a really helpful strategy in helping me stay focused and prioritize the things that are going to move my research forward. I love that, Jess. I feel like you just spoke to my inside self in a deep way. <laughs> I got a lot of that same feedback as a PhD learner that um, I needed to drop things and I was doing too many things. Uh, and I didn't really fully get it the first couple of years. Like, why yep. do I have to stop doing all this stuff? Yep. And it took me a while. But I think I really resonate with that tip for success as early as you can. Think about mm -hmm. what your mission statement is or your T-shirt statement or bumper sticker and yeah. stop doing and it. It does make else. me think back, like, what else could I have done with those first couple of years? <laughs> Had I been, you know, focused on things that were actually helping me learn new skills or, you know, get to the next step of my research? What if I hadn't been so distracted early on? How much better could it have been? It really is like learning. You're learning a new career and a whole new yes. skill set. And and it's hard to do that when your brain is thinking and about so many different things. Um, mm -hmm. It's an important lesson, right? And it's I think to me that's the time to actually learn that, right? And I think like the theme here because I would I had the same issue is that like it's normal to come in doing too much and to think you can do too much and like figuring out what capacity looks like so that you're prepared for actual for an actual research career. Like that's the time to learn the lesson. So you need those two years of you know, hitting your head against the wall and figuring it out. 
Yeah. And the other thing that I think is a hard learning curve is especially having come in, having been a clinician, then trying to come in and, and transition to research where instead of running around and interacting all day, I'm sitting at my computer and reading and writing. Um, that alone was a really hard transition. And I don't know about either of you, but when I first started, you know, those first few classes that you often take in your first year or two of a program tend to be reading and writing heavy, dense readings, theory readings, methods reading, and then all of these conceptual papers that for me have always been kind of hard. And those things take so much brain power in a different way than here's my really long list of things that I need to do today, but really I can do a lot of them in like five minutes by just sitting them down, sitting down and knocking them out. And I think that was hard also, knowing that the things that I needed to do were big and hard and took a lot of time and I couldn't just rush through my to-do list, uh, I think was a major like mental shift for me and just transitioning into a career, like a research path um, that I think takes a lot more time. That took a lot more time for me than I was prepared for. I had a similar experience. I think it was amazing for me actually, when I first like started letting go of some things, of some responsibilities that I had taken on that I was really interested and passionate about. But when I started letting some of those go and I saw how my research productivity and knowledge really increased, um, it was tough though. Mm -hmm. It used to take me, you know, two hours to write one paragraph (laughs) of a paper. Um, Yeah, it was hard. It's time consuming and it's a hard um, transition and and way to start thinking differently. It's like a whole new set of muscles and skills to develop. Maybe thinking about that a little bit and expanding, what are the obligations typically when you kind of are in those first couple of semesters of a PhD? What can people expect and how can you be successful with what that looks like? So one of the things that I've learned now that I'm at my third institution is that every place is very different. And that's something to ask about when you're thinking, looking at different programs. So where I went, I had um, 20% or 20 hours, I'm sorry, 50% of my time or 20 hours a week was dedicated to my mentor's research lab. And that's what provided my funding. So that covered the cost of my tuition, my benefits, and stipend. So I owed 20 hours a week to um, her research studies. And I did get a lot out of that because it taught me a lot about how to run a study and how to organize data and protect data and how to make sure data are complete and clean and organized. Um, It was a really great learning experience. um, And that took 20% of my time. The rest was dedicated to my coursework, and then any other research activities that I wanted to take on. So I did a secondary data analysis my first year and wrote that paper, took 
my first year, my second year, while I was also doing coursework and my 20 hours a week in the lab, I did a scoping review. Um, so I always had kind of one thing that was my own that I was working on, plus classwork. And the classwork that I, I think pretty much everywhere I've seen, those first couple of years, the coursework tends to be like pretty um, intensive because you're learning a lot that's conceptual, that makes you think really hard, a lot that's related to methods and analysis that to me was a whole new world that I had never really understood or even tried to understand before. Um, so that's what the time and obligations looked like. Um, I know there are other, for me, but at other places, I think it looks a lot different. You know, there are a lot of programs that I've I've looked at and that I've been associated with where funding is not guaranteed like that. I felt really lucky that I had a guaranteed four to five years of funding. Um, others don't offer things like that. Um, maybe there's a year or two of guaranteed funding and then you'd be on your own to find search assistant or teaching assistant position. Um, and then here at WashU, um, we're lucky here that the program just fully funds students to to dedicate their time full time to coursework and their own research. Um, so it's different everywhere. And those are, I think, important questions to ask. So you know what you're getting into and you know what to expect. Um, so um, we've already talked about this a little bit, but I'm curious, what are other pitfalls? Like we, we talked about kind of overcommitting, trying to do too much. Are there other common pitfalls that you think, you know, as um, on the front end, potential um, students can avoid or you wish you would have avoided? <laughs> um, I think it's just important. I don't know if this is necessarily a pitfall, but thinking back, I think I noticed that I tended to get frustrated by the lack of specificity in my ideas. And I don't think that's something to get frustrated about now that I'm through it. I think that was one of the best experiences is trying to figure out, like, I know that the problem that I want to solve is the lack of, of evidence-based intervention to promote participation in the community after brain injury. But am I going to do that through like cognitive interventions or strategy-based interventions or environments or social interventions? how do I want to think about it and measure it and address it? And those are all questions that I needed to sort out before I felt like I could really commit to like, what was the next right step? Uh, but I think that's, I'm learning that that's normal and it's okay. And that's good. And that's all really important thinking. And it's not something to get frustrated or discouraged by but instead to like get excited about and embrace and just dig in. And one of the things that really helped me push through that was just to do some concept mapping on my own and with my mentor and just start to think about what were some of the things I, I could try and which ones seemed like they were most missing data behind them, um, which ones were the most open opportunities, which were the most exciting opportunities that I cared about the most. Um, and that really helped me sort through all of that. But I've seen some of my colleagues go through similar challenges. And I think 
we maybe have felt similarly that it was really frustrating and maybe the hardest part of the program, but um, that's all and it's okay. And it's not a pitfall, it's just normal. Even if it feels like a pitfall. Yeah, and I think that's an excellent point. I feel like um, coming into a program, it's hard to think like, you know, you're not supposed to know more than you know on the one, like, right, you come in, like, at least I did. I think I came in thinking I was supposed to know more and then I had to remind myself like, oh yeah, that's what I'm here for. Um, and like, you know, that the process is, you know, the journey is just as important as the destination kind of figuring out how you get to that. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. The other thing I would say is not expecting that things are going to be perfect, uh, especially in early stages you know, we're kind of limited in how much funding we have to work with in, in dissertation studies or early data collection or anything like that. And it's okay that they're not perfect studies and it's a start and it's really just more of the experience of learning how to do research more so than getting really groundbreaking results. And that is also okay and not something to get discouraged or frustrated by. Yeah, that's, that there's so many good gems here. That's such a good point too. I think we all forget that like um, kind of uh, contradictory findings or actual findings or no findings or findings. I don't know that whole, right? Like we want, we, we want the big splashy. Yeah. Um, the big finding. That's not always the, the best finding. Yeah. I think the other thing I was just thinking about just kind of sitting here and listening and thinking is that, I don't know. One of the things I think that's key to learn as a student, and I don't, I don't know what your experience was with this, but like just learning how to network, learning how to talk to people, learning how to kind of reach out of those spaces and really connect and like how important that is for later. Right. Um, that, that was a big lesson for me. Like, you know, just send the email, go knock on the door, whatever, <laughs> to, you know, make the connections. Yeah. This is still a challenge <laughs> as someone who's in the, their first year still of a new um, faculty position at a new institution and and all new people um, who don't know me. Um, it's still a challenge. And that's coming from someone who tends to be fairly extroverted and social in nature. And it's still hard. Um, but yeah, when you're a PhD student, it's so much easier to, I think, feel really nervous about it when you're having to do it for the first time like well what if this person says no and like well then they say no and then you ask somebody else but in the moment it can feel like really anxiety provoking um I don't know that I've entirely made it through that yet <laughs> um I still find it hard and scary but um it's so worth it because finding a good network of people just you know, I think can make or break a research career. So um, I heard you talking it's worth, about it's worth the discomfort. Like yesterday, you were talking about developing like this new community partner and um, and how important that's been for your research. How did you get started with that moving to a new city? Um, well, I need to thank Peggy Barco, who's faculty here at WashU. My research is, is focused on people with brain injury, and she has been a brain injury clinician here 
for a very long time before becoming faculty and has remained um, very involved in the brain injury rehab community in St. Louis since becoming faculty. And she was the first people that I met with when I started here. And she really took the time to give me the lay of the land, who all the providers were, what all the organizations were, what are some of the things that work really well, and what are some of the areas that are lacking. And that um, was really helpful for me in understanding what was um, what were some good areas to potentially focus and who could be some good collaborators. And then, you know, I think this is really helpful. She just sent introductory emails, which was a lot easier than me just sending, you know, a cold call email. Um, and the people responded. And a couple of people have been really excited about my ideas. And we have identified a lot of shared values and priorities and, and questions. And um, it's taken off, taking off from there, which is really exciting. I feel That's like awesome. there were a lot of mini gems in there of like, how do you develop your professional network, you know, connecting with people, asking for those kind of warm handoff, supportive email introductions or in-person introductions, mm -hmm. but like you met with somebody who knew people in the network, in the place that you were going. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's important, like identifying who the connectors are in your circle and, you know, and some of us are those connectors, right, that naturally just kind of find and know those people and can identify those connections, but really thinking about, you know, how you optimize your network in that way, right, through the people you know, people you seek to know, people who also know them, and then also, you know, that whole, like, what's the worst that can happen, somebody says no, is, <laughs> right. like, it's so <laughs> and then you move on. And yet, it's yeah, exactly. Like you get the benefit of removing them from your list and not, you know, not spending more energy there and you move on. Um, but yeah, I, I, lots of gems. I agree. What a good term optimizing your network too, Kelly. I'm going to be thinking about that. I mean, yeah. I think it's like, I think it's something that we do and just don't think about. Right. And, you know, but like, it is a key skill. Um, and I, and I do think like, I mean, you cannot survive a PhD in a bubble. If you do, like, yeah. it's going to be so hard when you come out of it, right? Like, that's the time to kind of um, reach out. One of the things that we're expecting and asking PhD students in our program to do is like, go out of the program and find things, right? Go to presentations, seminars, workshops, go meet people, go do things, go learn what is off, what's available to you. Because that's the other thing as a PhD student. We have all these resources at these institutions and oftentimes we'll go through programs and not know, you know, more than half of them because we're living in our, you know, it's a lot of work and a lot of time. And so then we live in this little bubble in our space and don't, don't take advantage of the full breadth of things that are there for us. Yeah. And I think a lot of those informal opportunities and things like uh, workshops, university networking opportunities, those are really great opportunities for PhD students that I think are, maybe will feel easier and more accessible than trying to email someone who is an expert in your field who doesn't know you. And probably also more appropriate too for that stage because, you know, thinking back to what I just said about how it was so hard to even figure out where exactly I wanted to head with my research questions, you know, I think it's really important to have one strong mentor who's going to guide you through that process 
um, and then figure out strategically the right people to approach for additional mentorship once you have a little bit more of a clearer vision versus, um, you know, early on, if you're not exactly sure what you're going to do, it could end up being stressful for no reason if it's not somebody you're even going to need where things like those more informal networking opportunities or just getting to know who are some potential collaborators in your area understanding what kind of resources are available I think those are a lot more useful at an at an early PhD level phase I'm so glad that you both brought that up because I wanted to just ask maybe as a final tip or strategy doesn't have to be final though, for people that are going through the PhD process, it can be really hard to stay motivated and focused. It's, as you mentioned, Jess, it's long, it's intense. There aren't necessarily frequent milestones to show that you're making progress, you know, as in with other degree programs, you know, like there's midterms and finals, or if you're a clinician, you see so many patients a day there isn't that regular feedback that you're being successful. Do you have any tips for how you've maintained your motivation and focus over the years? I'll take them by the way, too. <laughs> um, I mentioned earlier having a research mission, I think is one thing that has really helped me stay focused. And I have used that also to build logic models of what are the things that I that I most need to get me here? What are the the big studies that I'm going to eventually need? And then backtracking from that, what what's the pilot data that I need? Who are the partners and collaborators and mentors that I need? Um, what other things infrastructure do I need to build to make sure that I can do this study when the time comes? Um, and that has helped me have. I think a clear picture of where my research is headed. And then again, it also helps me know if other opportunities that are that come up are worth the time. Are they going to help me achieve my mission or would they be more of a distraction? Um, and that has really helped me stay focused. Having a mission and having some logic models for what I want to accomplish has, has I think been the biggest thing for prioritizing and staying motivated. And then one of the things that I think just on a day-to-day -day basis that helps me stay focused is having social support. Um, Catherine thinks that I'm this really productive person, but really I'm also very distractible, but I have learned really well how to use social support effectively to make sure that I'm on track and having people who I'm accountable to. Um, has helped. And so Catherine and I and some others, we do writing accountability groups where we hop on a Zoom call, we set a goal, we turn off our cameras and our videos, and we write or work on something that is directly going to affect our research, um, whether that's a paper or a grant or analyzing data, getting ideas organized, and then we have to check in at the end and report out on whether we achieved our goal and for me, that has been really helpful in in the day-to-day -day of staying focused and getting things done.
That's helpful. Thanks, Jess. I like the social accountability too. I'm also a checklist person. I really get excited when I cross things off of a checklist. Um, and so I always have a checklist, even if there's very little things that only take a few minutes, because a lot of the things on there take months. And so when I have little things that I can cross off, it feels really good. Yeah, I I sometimes will like complete a task that wasn't on my checklist and add it just so I can cross it off. <laughs> you gotta it get it. I think it's important. But um, I was also just thinking while I was listening that like I feel like it, during a PhD program, but I think in a research career period, there it's there's a series of kind of ups and downs. Like we're so in this work, and sometimes you got to be able to step away. So I just think the self care piece is really important for motivation, like being able to step away and come back with, with fresh eyes and kind of fresh perspective and being okay in that. I felt like, you know, I think sometimes as a student, you know, as PhD students, we can pressure ourselves that like, there's no time to step away. There's no time to, you know, you have to like live, you know, sleep, breathe, eat um, your work and, and like, it's just unsustainable. So, the world is not going to end if your paper's not written today. <laughs> yeah exactly right um but yeah just thinking about being able to put it down as a way to re-motivate yourself yeah maybe for our resources for listeners who are listening in I'll put some information in on the website about writing accountability groups and like the Pomodoro technique and stuff which I think is what you were alluding to Jess yes uh, Dr. Kersey, do you have any other comments or thoughts that you'd like to share? It's important to know that the things that feel really hard about starting and continuing through a PhD program are just, they feel so hard, but they're normal and it's all beneficial. Like struggling through some of those hard transitions, learning how to write again efficiently, learning how to read efficiently, dense manuscripts, um, all of that pays off. It feels really hard and challenging in the moment. And it feels like, gosh, why did it take me four hours to write one page? That's all benefiting you in the end. And perseverance is really important. Um, and I think just Sticking through those hard times in the end is is totally worth it because it feels so good when you've like really accomplished something and felt like you've gotten better and learned. It's so worth it, I think, in the end. I'll leave it on that. It's worth it in the end. Keep, <laughs> keep working at it. Use your social supports. Find yes. good mentorship. Take advantage of your networks and your university and what they have to offer. and do yep. good science. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Jess. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. Check out our other episodes to hear more. You can find the first season on YouTube under Washington University Program and Occupational Therapies channel under the First Fridays for OT Research playlist. 
and more episodes of Demystifying Research linked under the Research tab on the Washington University OT webpage at ot.wustl.edu. That's ot.wustl.edu. Send us your ideas for future episodes at demystifyingresearch at wustl.edu.